This is Altruistic, where we speak with pioneers in the race to zero and unpack the lessons from their experience for you, our community of impact professionals. Over the last 15 years of working in sustainability, I'm often asked by sustainability professionals in large companies how they should think about galvanizing the organization behind what they want to do from a sustainability program and roadmap and intervention perspective. And I think the best way for them to approach this is usually to start with the why aspect. And in that context, most sustainability professionals, or many of us at least, who've been in the space for several years, because we're very ideologically motivated people, we tend to start with something like, this is the right thing to do, this is what society expects of us, this is the mission. Whereas actually, I think we need to reframe that and start with the business problem that we want to solve. And I think we need to say, look, this is the consumer value proposition if we're B2C, or this is the customer value proposition if we're B2B. This is what our largest customers are expecting from us in terms of output. This is the upside for us in terms of value, whether that's a consumer value in terms of, let's say, loyalty or pricing potential, or in the B2B space, it might be much more around strategic relationship building for long-term growth of that account. But you want to start with the business value and link it actually to the main KPIs of the business, which are often going to be financial. Starting with that aspect is important because it helps align the interests and incentives of the sustainability team and the board. And I think that no matter how well-intentioned most board members are, and I assume that most of them want to do the right thing for the world and the community, but at the end of the day, they're accountable to shareholders, many of whom will think fundamentally first and foremost about the financial return. And I think that's that's okay. I actually don't think that's a problem. I think it is possible to align these two sets of incentives. I think the second piece of that puzzle is then, okay, we are aligned on the why we want to do this. Let's actually also talk about what we want to do in terms of what we want to achieve and whether this is going to take 10 years. What are the big themes? There are going to be some areas where you actually really want to excel because it's a mission that is closely aligned with your brand, for instance. So if you think of a lot of cosmetics companies, let's say, you're often talking about the fragrances and, the, and where they're coming from and the supply chain and where this is sourced, because that's a big part of the brand identity, that sort of consumer story. It might be different for different businesses. In some cases, it's going to be around emissions. In some, it's around water. In some, it's around biodiversity. And you want to anchor on those, let's say, two or three challenges that you really want to excel at versus all the others where you just kind of want to be good enough uh, and above board and meeting expectations. You then want to move on and talk about, okay, so what are like the bets that we're making in terms of work that we're going to do? What do we know? What do we not know? And where are we going to start to test and learn and deploy some interventions and then experiment and get things wrong and then fix things later? I think that across all these three, which is kind of why we're doing this, what we're going to sort of do thematically, and then how we're going to implement, you also want to have some heavy caveating. And the heavy caveating is mostly going to be around where do we have a really good sense of what the answer is based on the data versus where are we actually reasonably unsure because the data just isn't there yet. And I think starting with that transparency right at day one, day zero even, is super important because that's where you build the trust to get your stakeholders with you along that whole journey, which is actually going to take maybe a decade and in most cases, actually multiple decades. We're hearing a lot of insight, I guess, really from our customers and prospects around the need for sustainability to be self-financing and support itself almost in the interests of the business and its commercial priorities. How do you find that set of trade-offs or maybe actual full synergy at Bloom and Wild? Yeah, so I think very often there can actually be a good business case for it. It's not always immediately easy to make that business case because it can be 
relatively more intangible as well. So when it comes to, you know, the war on talent or customer loyalty, there are metrics that you can use to see how sustainable brands are performing better than conventional brands, so to say, but it's a little bit harder to put a number on. But also if we look at our operations, um, looking at especially this winter with the energy crisis going on, the fact that we have lower emission carriers so that we've looked at really improving the efficiencies and using as little packaging as possible, or the fact that we've got an insight in actually where the footprint of our products are biggest and how we can avoid perhaps the, the most carbon intensive products because they will go up in price the most when there's an energy crisis. There's been a lot of opportunities actually to use sustainability data as a means of becoming a better business also from a commercial standpoint. So not just an environmental standpoint in this case, but also commercially. So I think it's not always immediately upfront apparent where the commercial value will be, but we've actually seen a lot of opportunities to use sustainability as a whole to make us a better business on a holistic note. Simba, we'd love to hear a few of those examples. It sounds like there's some really interesting interventions that are informed by sustainability, but also commercially advantageous. Would you be able to share one or two examples? Well, so I think to dive into the the flower sourcing, by having a carbon footprint per flower, we actually could see, okay, which flowers might be less available in the winter just because these growers will be impacted by the energy crisis. So they might actually stop growing in some cases, which happened. And that actually better prepared us for this winter. Plus, we've actually been able to work also together with partners in finding other ways of growing or, or working together on sharing knowledge on what the more sustainable growing practices were for the most at-risk categories. Uh, so I think those have been important steps for us. Um, I think that's that's been a key one. I think we've also seen that, of course, every supplier is hit to a certain extent by the, the current inflation and, and the rising prices. But the ones who've had the better sustainability practices, so the ones who've been adopting renewables as inputs for, for their energy needs, they've, of course, been affected a lot less. So they've also, again, been a good predictor of what are good suppliers for us to work together with and which ones we want to scale up for the future because of the better performance overall. That's fascinating to hear, Sibin. I'm sure there'll be a lot of resonance for a lot of our listeners. Thank you. In September last year, you announced that Gusto had gone through the process of becoming a B Corp, really, really rigorous process. What do you see as the biggest benefits or opportunities for Gusto in becoming this sustainable business in a B Corp? We do know that there are direct correlations between our progress in sustainability and also our business growth. We know that our customers care about sustainability and will choose a product or a brand that is more sustainable over one that is less. And it's not just about customers in terms of perceptions. It's also regulators, it's investors. Um, so Gusto has a revolving credit facility with a bank, which is sustainability linked. And so the rate that we pay on that loan is affected by our progress against three sustainability targets. So you can see that our progress in the area is beneficial to us in, in lots of different ways with those kinds of stakeholders. It also helps us to foster innovation. So in our case, we know that customers retain better if they see, for example, less plastic in their Gusto box. So reducing plastic is an area that we've made great progress in. We cut plastic in our boxes by 50% in 
2021 by uh, switching to a more sustainable packaging across a lot of our primary ingredients. Also launching the Eco Chill Box, which is the insulator that we have in Gusto boxes, which is made of recycled cardboard and keeps ingredients fresh in our boxes. And the focus on sustainability also helps us to mitigate risk and drive efficiency. So with TCFD reporting coming in, we're having to surface all of those biggest climate-related financial risks, um, extreme weather events. And, and, and just stepping back in time a little, we'd love to know sort of how Gusto's thinking about sustainability has evolved from your early wins in the sustainability space and, and, and where your thinking is today. Yeah, I think in our early days as a startup, we were very much focused on getting the foundations right and scaling, knowing that our business model was more sustainable than the alternative because it reduces food waste and food waste is a really important contributor in in greenhouse gas emissions. Since then, once we had more momentum and investment in the business, we have focused on targets in areas that we know are particularly important to stakeholders. So for instance, our pledge to cut plastic packaging by 50%. And now I guess we're in the third stage really of taking a much broader view of our impact, identifying areas of largest impact by improving our data and monitoring and really targeting progress in those, um, which you can see in our broad sustainability strategy. Our customers at Altruistic tend to be, you know, some of the world's largest CPG and food service companies. And as you as you probably will agree, often the business sustainability teams in these organizations are incredibly passionate, motivated, excited to actually drive change. One of their main challenges is how do I actually find allies in other parts of the business or how do I start rolling this out towards the line and towards operations? And I think that that tool of empathy and actually understanding that this is a shift, it's going to be painful, it's going to be difficult, there are going to be you know, trade-offs is a really important one. Do you have any advice for these business sustainability teams, just having navigated this with with companies, what helps when you're trying to convince like a a cafe management to actually shift its its entire way of doing business, right? Or any one of your customers for that matter? Sales, you either have to make the money or uh, save the money. So that's a very binary way. So we do it in both ways. Through a lot of our research, we found that it's cheaper to advertise around sustainability points. So if you are advertising, let's say you've just launched a more sustainable uh, packaging line for your beverage or food, the cost of acquisition will be lower because you will simply have a higher conversion for that particular ad. So marketing spends goes down. On the other side, if you build in loyalty for your product, you're more likely to have increase in sales. Now, with the circular economy, what's interesting is you can drive more product to a customer if you are already picking up some form of packaging from them, right? Let's say you're a subscription for a refillable deodorant, right? Now, it's very unlikely that I'm going to switch to another brand if I've already started that one-off process and I'm getting refillable cartridges. Now, the, the idea is that I'm getting refillable cartridges often through the post. I might then move into other types of products. You're building product loyalty with the brand that will increase your sales so the circular economy this idea of like rotating things in the circular motion 
is seen to be a way of building long-term loyalty with not just your existing customer base, but then uh, combining that with marketing ad spends to find newer acquisitions and then bringing them back into that loyalty loop. That's that's what we've seen has worked really well. Thank you to our listeners for listening in to today's episodes of This is Altruistic. Do get in touch if you're on a journey to understanding your business's environmental impact. The notes from this episode are available in the show notes below, and you can find more episodes of This is Altruistic on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts.